I thought I was just going to a women's meeting, but what I was learning was how to get into humanity. And in the beginning, I thought I was just taking care of business. I was really learning how to practice the principles of AA in, in all my affairs. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Live from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas, that was the voice of Rena that you heard at the beginning of this here episode number 276, and you're going to hear so much more from Rena in un momento, but... First things first, this episode is being brought to you by Brad and Jim and Sherry. What you may ask that Brad and Jim and Sherry do, well, they went to our little website, www.soberspeak.com, clicked on the little yellow donate tab, and they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Brad and Jim and Sherry. This here episode is coming right out to Ewans. All right, I saw something in the super secret Facebook group this week that I liked, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read that. And uh, this was posted by Steve. Steve is one of our several, what I call, daily reflections guys. Uh, Steve is one of these guys. He goes in there just about every day, I think. He posts something in there. It's a quote from the big book, and then he follows it up with some commentary. So this is what Steve posted. I said, this is a quote from page 58 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Page 58. And then Steve follows it up with the commentary. It says, two big ifs. A decision and the willingness to do the work. Neither were easy for me, he said. The first required in my mind and spirit a leap of faith, a clear and certain choice to trust in a process I didn't understand and a higher power I understood even less. Sure, the reality of the unmanageability of my life seems like it should have made for an easy choice, but... It still was not so easy to trade the known for the unknown. 
Good way to put that, Steve. And he said, and the second choice, a willingness to do the work of change is a choice I make every day. I suspect that may be true for as long as I live that each morning I will be presented with a choice to grow or to shrink back into the disease. And he always ends it with this, help one, save two, happy Thursday. Very well put in. I'm going to read that from the big book one more time. What Steve put in here to start out the quote, it says, page 58, if you have decided, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Thank you, Steve, for putting that in there. Now, on to our featured guest of the week, of, excuse me, of the week, not Weiss, I don't even know what a Weiss is. Um, we are presenting here Miss Rena K. And this t- this uh, episode is entitled, You're Sober, Now What? And I believe that Rena is actually working on pinning a, a book by the same title. But nonetheless, it says, You're Sober, Now What? Rena has been sober since, get this, 1975. Yes, 1975, that is 47 years sober, and she is an incredible AA treasure. She resides in Punta Gorda, Florida. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, we talk about a lot of things here. It's a, we talk about Captain Kangaroo. I believe that is the first time Captain Kangaroo has ever come up on Sober Speak. We talk about what happens after getting sober by the title of the episode. I'm sure you could figure that out. AA, uh, excuse me, Rena talks about AA history, the traditions and utilizing them in one's daily life, the concept of unity, and she talks about repetition in AA and how one learns through that repetition and we discussed so much more with Rena. All right, everybody, buckle up, enjoy this one. Without further ado, I present to you Rena K. And guess what? We will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy, Rena. Okay, everybody. So today we're sitting here. I've really been looking forward to this particular interview. We're sitting here with Rena. So, Rena, first of all, I'm going to have I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself, and then give your sobriety date, and then tell people where you live in this great land of ours, if you will, please. Okay. Thank you. I, uh, I am an alcoholic. That's the most important thing. My name is Rena. I guess that's secondary. Uh, my sobriety date is October 16th, 1975. And I live in a little tiny town called Punta Gorda, Florida, which nobody's heard of. And we like it that way. It's on the <laughs> Gulf. And uh, the AA here is outstanding. I have a most wonderful home group called the Eye Opener. And uh, I would not have moved here if the A had been anything but outstanding. Okay, so a couple things. First, right off the bat, 75, that is quite a long time, 1975. Do the math for me. How many years has that been? 47. Wow, Raina. 47 years. All right, so we'll talk about that in a little in a second. And then your home group is called... The eye opener. Does that mean it's a morning meeting? Right when... Every morning. 
<laughs> Does it start early, like seven o'clock? No, eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Yeah, that's still enough of an eye opener there. <laughs> it, so I I was referred to you, but I believe. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head. It was Karen, right? Do you sponsor Karen? Uh-huh. Yeah. So Karen just had nothing but wonderful things to say about you. As you know, she's there. I think she's in the Tampa area. Is that yes, right? she is. Yeah. So Karen uh, referred me over to you. And uh, like I said, I've been looking really forward to this. Uh, you, uh, in fact, we were talking a little bit before we started. Uh, you you said you are similar to how Bob B shares. What do you discuss that with me? What do you mean by that? I don't just tell my story. I've, I've listened to it enough times that uh, I could do it in my sleep. But uh, the most important thing about Alcoholics Anonymous to me is the transitions we make, the transformations. And from the person that came into AA to the person I am today and the person that I was the second day I was in AA and growing all the time ever since. That's what I talk about. Not just the nuts and bolts, you know, first I did this, then I did that. That's not really important. Our stories are so similar in terms of of the outsides, you know. Um, It's the insides that are where my alcoholism is. I understand. Um, And I want to go ahead and say this on the beginning as well. Uh, You know, first of all, we were talking about how you've never done a podcast before. You've told your story umpteen million times. Uh, However, you thought that it was kind of interesting that for this, you didn't have to get all dressed up or gussied (laughs) up. (laughs) You know, it's funny on Zoom, you put on a nice top and you do your hair, the makeup, and you can still be in your shorts and flip flops. You know, I mean, I live in Florida, right? And, uh, but for, for this, I didn't have to do anything. This is pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad. Well, we'll try to make this a pleasant experience for you on your, uh, uh, first podcast. Um, okay. So I, this is what I always run into with somebody who's been sober nearly 50 years, not quite. Uh, and, um, you know, how do we cover a lot of ground in uh, a very short period of time? So let's go, uh, let's take us back, first of all, to what was going on with Rena uh, before 1975. Where do you want to start? Well, actually, it's simple. The hard part is cramming in the esoteric part. You know, it's like, uh, let me start by saying that, um, For example, on my first anniversary, my sponsor was going to give me my medallion, my one-year medallion. I'd been looking forward to it all year. And we stood at that podium, and she was speaking about me, and I'm standing there all puffed up, you know, with ego and false humility. And here's what she said. Rena, you've spent one whole year learning how to not drink alcohol. You can spend the rest of your life learning how to be sober. And she was right. And that's my story. The other, the back story is that I really believe that, that uh, my alcoholism is inside of me. It took alcohol to ignite it. I know that there are people probably that go their whole lives without ever picking up a drink and they can't be called alcoholic, but they have the ism. 
And uh, I have that ism, and I had it ever since I was a little kid. You know, I was born into a military family, and we moved all the time, and I had a mother and a father and a sister and a brother, and um, they were all happy doing this, you know. They moved all the time. We moved all the time. I hated my life. As a little kid, I hated my life. I was Hmm. sullen and withdrawn. I was uh, socially inept. I didn't belong. You know, the usual things. I had all of the isms. Uh, Didn't fit in. Felt like, uh, you know, I was just born the wrong time. And as a result, uh, I got into reading, which was my first addiction. Um, I used to think I read to escape, but I read really about families when I look back families that played together, worked together, loved each other, the John boy kind of syndrome. And, uh, and I was looking for a sense of belonging always. I had this yearning from a little kid. And, um, what happened for me was, uh, when I was seven and my little brother was five, he died very suddenly and tragically and our whole world changed. My parents never mentioned his name again to us anyway. And it filled me with such, I mean, I was already self-centered and it filled me with such terror that I couldn't even begin to fathom it. And so I completely got into my own self-reliance. I'm the only one that's going to take care of me. Uh, I had no idea what kind of power people had that could kill a kid, you know, with no explanation. And I made up my own rules about how the world was. And I lived by them until I came into AA. And they were completely screwed up. I mean, I viewed the world very as a hostile, hostile place. And I reacted accordingly. Do you mind if I ask how your little brother died? He drowned. He was five years old. And we were living in Seal Beach, California. And he was told not to go to the ocean by himself. Five years old. He went and he got pulled into the undertow and drowned. And all I remember about it is a policeman coming to the door. Wow, what a way to start out there. Okay, so your brother drowns. uh, It's tragic for the family. However, he's not mentioned. Uh, Did you find that strange at the time? No, they didn't talk about anything. Don't forget, my parents were from an era where you didn't really talk about anything. I'm not blaming them at all. They did what was right for them at the time according to what they knew. And that was what they did in those days, apparently, was just you don't, somebody dies, you don't talk about them anymore. Later on, uh, my little sister died of a brain tumor and never mentioned the first thing my parents did was change her room into a library. She was 13 years old. And that was just the way things, at least in my family, that's how they were done. But I, my whole thing is, it's my perception that's the problem. And I perceived all of this in a way that was very, very scary and unhealthy. Okay, so your uh, childhood had a couple of tragedies there. and then when did alcohol and or drugs or whatever was going on with you start to get introduced into the picture? Well, I was a late bloomer. My parents, it turns out, 
I knew my father probably had a drinking problem because he would get drunk and he'd shout at me. You know, I was no good. I was never going to amount to anything. And I think what it was was uh, his only son had died. And uh, so he drank and he yelled. And my mother, I really believe she died the day my brother died because she just was kind of withdrawn completely. And she had this, this um, disapproval attitude. No matter what I did, it was never going to be enough. And um, as a result, um, I didn't really see alcohol as being very positive. Uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with it, really. But uh, I think I'd already gone through one husband and uh, was uh, working on number two. Well, how old were you when you married the first one? I was 18. And I think here's another big turning point for me that I've, I've hesitated about talking about it on a podcast, but I, I need to because it's a pivotal part of my story. I was supposed to grow up, go to college, get married, have 3.5 children, join the junior league and, and learn to play bridge and become a grandmother. That was my life plan, according to my parents. I did it all backwards. I went to high school. I got pregnant, and in those days, there was no way anybody was going to look upon this favorably. It was a great disgrace, and I was filled with shame and guilt, and my parents were too, and they sent me off to live with another family. And um, so what happened was the baby was born. She was supposed to be adopted. I didn't do it, and I married the father. Two years later, I divorced the father and gave my daughter to his parents to raise. And I think that's pivotal because I, at this point I had not had a drink, but it was soon thereafter that I started drinking. And I, ostensibly it was because I was nervous with this second husband date. And uh, he offered me a Manhattan and I took it. And I wanted just to be able to relax a little bit. And I really think that that's when I was, uh, the whole alcoholism thing was ignited in me because I didn't have just one drink. I drank until I got drunk. And I did that every time I had a drink. Um, I could not stop. I couldn't control uh, in any fashion right from the get-go. I could not control the amount I drank. I learned to not have anything if I couldn't have all I wanted. And I ended up marrying that husband and marrying a couple other guys after that. And because my real story is about the drinking and I knew nothing about alcoholism. I didn't know about the progression. I didn't know particularly about the progression in women and that it was a downhill slide. I can look back now and see from that first drink down to the last drink. John, I'll tell you, the thing is, when I quit drinking, I had totally isolated myself. Um, I lived in my dirty old nightgown because it took too much energy to, for me to to take a shower or wash my hair. I didn't see anybody, and uh, I didn't want anybody to see me drunk, so I completely withdrew from everybody. Uh, it was a miserable, miserable existence. Now, in 1972, I went to one AA meeting, and I went to the meeting, and I don't remember anything about the context. I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And uh, I don't know if you know that, but uh, I actually am in the Dallas, Texas area. I did know that. That's right. Yeah. And what do you remember what meeting you went to at the time? In the Preston Club. 
Yeah, I found it's out still around. Later. Yeah, I found out later. It's a very good meeting, but I didn't yeah. look at it that way. My perception, I tell you, rules my life. And my perception at that time, I left the meeting feeling kind of superior. I was dead drunk when I went. I could hardly drive. I was so drunk. And I remember feeling kind of superior. I gave him a dollar. And I left thinking, isn't it nice those people have a place to go? I can do this on my own because I'm totally self-reliant. I've got every power in me to do this. And I'll tell you the truth, the next three years were a living hell because I tried to control my drinking. And that's when I got completely isolated. And that's all I thought about was drinking or not drinking. And it was bad. It was 24-7, you know. And I did things like, you know, I learned that if I had a, a glass of scotch first thing in the morning when I woke up or came to, then I didn't throw up. And so I would get my glass of scotch. And there, in those days, we didn't have cable. We had three channels We had uh, that went off at night. Well, they came on in the morning, and I had a choice of two channels at that point. One, I could watch the farm news, or I could watch Captain Kangaroo. And I would sit there with my glass of scotch watching Captain Kangaroo. I still love that man. He was a great friend. These were my contacts. These were my people, you know. And um, if it hadn't been for an absolute miracle, I never would have gotten sober. I would have died. In those days, when I, um, I would try quitting drinking every once in a while, during that three-year period, and I had learned I had to put myself in a hospital to do so because I'd go into convulsions. I'd have seizures. I was, you know, I was a really low-bottom drunk. And, and so another thing I want to ask you about, you know, you were talking about in those days, you know, in, in 1972, 1973, 1974, 1975, all throughout that er- area, uh, I would imagine there weren't many women alcoholics that were in the room. Am I right? There weren't. As my, now, this is my perception that I was the only woman and that they were all men. It may have been true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there couldn't have been too many. Okay, so uh, uh, I took you off track there. So you're so now you're you're going to the you went to that meeting, uh, and then you went back out for a little while, um, and then take me past that, Rena. Well, I never ever got sober, you know, and I never I, I decided AA obviously it was not for me, and I you know I had all the bewilderments. I was restless, irritable, and discontented, and and uh, I, I as a matter of fact. <laughs> Um, I moved from Dallas the next day. I was afraid these people were going to come after me. And so I told you, I looked at the world as a hostile place and I packed my car at night and I drove to Florida and that's how I got to Florida the first time. Did you know where you were going? No, just headed, headed East. I had lived in California for many years and I'd lived all over the world actually, but, uh, I kept on heading East. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I ended up in Florida, but uh, the um, the drinking was just so. I mean, it was surreal. My life it was totally surreal. Uh, I was so full of self pity. I was so lonely, and I had all of the you know self self pity thing going on. Uh, 
you know, the, the judgments that I made about the world were formed when I was less than seven years old, you know, and I really believe I had every character defect firmly in place by the time I was seven. And when I got to AA, they were the same ones that I formulated, I chose when I was seven years old, uh, when my brother died. And, um, you know, they don't call childhood the formative years for nothing. It's hard work being a kid. <laughs> I mean, you got to figure out the world, right? right? And I tell you what, when I got sober, and as I say, I've got to tell you about my miracle. I was not doing anything that day. I was uh, just another day. And there was a, I remember a glass of scotch on the bedside table. And it was left over from the night before. Thank God I hadn't put a cigarette out in it. And I was going to drink it when the phone rang. The phone never rang because I didn't, I had isolated myself from my family, from any friend I might have ever had. And it was a woman that did not know me. Uh, she'd gotten my number by mistake. I had no clue who she was. And she had six years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for some reason, we started talking. And here's a kicker. This is what makes AA work. I've been to psychiatrists through the years trying to figure out why people didn't treat me the way I should be treated, uh, you know, and why, why these men particularly just didn't do right. Um, but the psychiatrist always started out by saying, tell me about yourself. This woman did not do that. She said, let me tell you about me. And she told me about her drinking. She told me about the shame and the guilt she felt. And she told me about her recovery and her recovery in AA. And that night she said, Rena, you've gone 12 hours without a drink of alcohol. You can go another 12 hours and you'll have one day. And that's how we do it in AA, one day at a time. She said, I suggest you get on your knees and you ask God for help to stay away from a drink tonight. And out of my mouth, because I was honest, I said, oh, I can't do that. I don't believe in God. And there was this long pause. And she said, then you lose. And I didn't want to lose. I already was a loser, you know. <laughs> and I did not want to lose the only human being I'd ever made real contact with the first person ever I made a connection with in my whole life. I had, you know, the mask that we all talk about. I was real with her and she was real with me. So out of my mouth popped the, probably the most profound sentence I'll ever say. I said, maybe I'm a little bit spiritual. And that opened the door to be able to try to do something that someone else suggested it wasn't the great I am coming up with a plan. And I did as she suggested. And the humility that's involved in that is so beautiful and fragile that I just, I tear up when I ever think about that moment. That I agreed to do something I did not want to do, didn't believe in. And I got on my knees after making sure all the curtains were shut, you know, the, the, everything. And I got on my knees and I asked her God to keep me sober that night. And I got up off my knees and strangely enough, I felt pretty darn good. 
I should have been going into into convulsions or DTs or something by now because I hadn't had a drink. Instead, I went to my bed and I lay down. And I went to sleep for the first time. I had a real sleep first time in years. And I woke up the next morning and I was so excited. I called her and I said, I, I've had, I've got 24 hours. It's been a whole day. I didn't drink last night. And she said, oh, Rena, that's congratulations. That's wonderful. She said, welcome to AA. You are now a card-carrying member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She <laughs> said, welcome home. Oh. And that was the beginning. Wow. That was so beginning. now you, you got your card. You're a card-carrying <laughs> member. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've got my card and started going to meetings and um, ended up realizing that my shyness was only another, it's a manifestation of my self-centeredness. When I look at it that way, it's a whole different ball game than being shy. Being shy kind of means, you know, you got to accommodate me because I'm shy. Being self-centered means stop thinking about yourself, Rena. Go over and find a woman that, that looks like she's as nervous as you are and say hi to her and see what happens. And I started doing things like that. I got a sponsor. The first sponsor <laughs> that I got, they said, get a sponsor. And I didn't know what that meant, but, uh, but they said, find some woman that has what you want. So I found a woman that had a lot of money because I was broke <laughs> at that time, totally broke. And they said, no, no, including this lady said, oh, no, no, that's not exactly what we mean. Find a lady that has the kind of sobriety you want. And so I found the sponsor that I had for more than 40 years. And Tommy died in uh, 2017. I still miss her, but I'll tell you what, I have another sponsor. I am not going to be the be all and the end all for me. I cannot be objective about me. I need somebody. So when somebody with 47 years is trying to find a sponsor, is one of your criteria is that they have more sobriety than no. you? Gotcha. She has 10 years less than I have. Yeah. And yeah, because it must be hard to find people with over 47 years sobriety. You know, it really isn't, but most of them I know, uh, they don't have what I want, and this girl does. She's got a spiritual program that is, uh, is just wonderful, and I've known her for a long time. She's uh, one of the speakers, and I met her at a conference. I'm a conference junkie. I either go to speak or I go to listen, either one, I don't care. And uh, I'd known her for a long time. And when the time came, I knew exactly who I was going to ask. So I want to go back to, okay, so, so you get sober, right? And obviously, just from listening to the first part of what you discussed there, there's some wreckage to be dealt with. Oh, yeah. uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the, the, I think the, the daughter, uh, and, uh, maybe some of the husbands. So why don't you, I mean, you just pick what you want to tell me about the, I guess the amends part, cleaning up the wreckage of your past. What happened during those years? Well, most of the men, you know, were so transitory that I just, I mean, I wasn't there. They weren't there. Uh, it was, there was no amends to be made. 
And, uh, but my daughter, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of my drinking had to do with that guilt. You know, I've got to tell you that, uh, in 72, before I went to this meeting, uh, AA meeting, my mother was, uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. And, uh, for some reason, and the only thing I can think of is that God had me do this, and it seemed like it was my idea, so I did it. Um, I came to her house, and I stayed with her until she died. And um, the only thing that God put this in my head, too, I know, the only thing I thought of that would make her happy would be to see me and my daughter, and her only grandchild, in the same room. So I contacted uh, Roger's parents, the father's parents, and arranged to have Nina come. They lived in Northern California. My parents lived in Southern California. And so um, I flew up and got Nina and brought her back down to be united with all of us. And it was the most amazing thing. I had been in denial about her for so long, John, that it was just, it was an amazing thing. And we started this kind of halting relationship. She was 13. I had not seen her for 11 years. And so we had this kind of, we didn't know what to do with each other, you know. Um, the guilt that I had was just so enormous. Uh, I'm sure it kept me drinking for years. But the the relationship that we established had one more abandonment to go through. And that is when I went back, my mother died. And um, I went back to Dallas. She stayed in California because she was 13 and in school, right? And um, we would see each other a little bit. But my drinking got so bad that I couldn't see her. I, not, I was too embarrassed. So I would make up excuses why she couldn't come to visit. And I did not see her again until I was about three weeks sober, real sober. And... Uh, we we have a good relationship now. Since we didn't know how to do the mother-daughter thing, we made up our own roles. And we have a, a really good relationship uh, in the sense that I look at her kind of like a really good friend. And she does the same to me. She's a younger friend and I'm an older friend. And we get along. She calls me Rena, and we get along just fine. She uh, She's an amazing person. You know, one, oh God, I really think that alcohol allowed me to drown that unbearable pain that I felt from the shame of, of the abandonment that I did to her where I, it was all self-centered. It was all self-centered. You know, I just threw her away like a piece of trash and I could not live with it. I think if I hadn't had alcohol, I probably would have killed myself. But I'm too egotistical to do that. I'd have to see who came to the funeral. So I've never entertained that. <laughs> Not been part of my thing. So this relationship with my daughter over the years has really blossomed. You know, it was shaky and uncertain in the beginning, but it's on firm footing now because we're honest with each other. Um, oops. So as I say, the, the wreckage of the past, that was pretty much it. I had made amends to my mother by sitting with her day after day after day as she went through the, the process of her cancer. And um, she died in 1972. And it was not, I drank for the next year. And it was in the end of 1972 that I went to that first meeting 
the the handwriting was on the wall. <laughs> you know, I was going to drink. I had to stop or die, but I could do it, right? I was going to give it the old college try. I, but I started going to meetings, and I became absolutely obsessed with AA. And the reason is that that uh, somebody gave me a book called the, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought they meant when they were going to give me a big book, they were going to give me a Bible. But this has become my Bible. I hate to tell you that, that but that's the truth. I think every answer I, to any problem is in that book. I do a lot of studying of the big book. I've started groups where we get together and we read it line by line, word by word, and we insert the history into what Bill's writing. Uh, there's some. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, the people that he talks about, uh, Roland Hazard. You know, we talk about Roland Hazard and the fact that Roland Hazard had to do this in order for this to happen. That Roland had to go see Young. He had to go see Abby. Abby had to come see Bill. We talk about the miracles. These people that got together having no program whatsoever other than the Oxford group, believe me, I'm a historian. I love the history of how in the world a bunch of drunks got this going, you know, and thank God for the traditions. We would never have stayed together. Uh, my, I got married again in the program when I was five years sober and it all went to hell in a handbasket. We were both in the program. He was nine. I was five. We loved each other and we'd made a hundred percent commitment to the marriage. Always before in those marriages I told you about, I had made a 99% commitment. You know what that is? That's when you're dancing with the love of your life, looking over his shoulder to see if somebody better is coming along. (laughs) And that's what I had done my whole life with friends, with people, with husbands. Um, But we'd made a 100% commitment, and our, our sponsors... Oh, my God, we would never have made it without them. They put us on the traditions. We learned how to live the traditions in our daily lives. And that's what that's where the emotional maturity comes from, the emotional sobriety that we worked on our weird dependencies, the faulty dependencies that Bill talks about, Bill Wilson. And uh, we worked on our own self-centeredness. We worked on on being able to be equal in a relationship, and we worked primarily on unity. The concept of unity was so important. And the neatest part is I take this into every area of my life. I can be in the grocery store practicing the traditions. You know, um, the traditions allow me to live comfortably in the world, you know, Um, and certainly it ended up with Bill and me having a very good healthy, adult, grown-up relationship. So give me an example. Uh, when you say you work through traditions, uh, I can see in the marriage through unity and such, but when you're working through traditions like in the grocery store and in your daily life, talk to me a little about that. I'm a great believer that each group is autonomous and each group, each person in the group is autonomous. They're their own person. They're not a meld, you know. And when I see a clerk at a grocery store and I'm putting my groceries on the line and she's scowling or something and and looking harassed and like she's not there, I can say, are you having a bad day? 
And she will usually smile and say, yes, I am, you know, <laughs> and we end up joking and talking and, and I'm not trying to change how she feels. I'm just trying to connect. I really I believe the longer I'm sober, that the point of the world, the point of being alive is to connect, to love one another, just like it says in our big book, love and tolerance of others. It just makes me so, when I hear people say, love and tolerance is our code. No, it's not. Love and tolerance <laughs> of others is our others. code. And that means everybody I meet. And I have made some silly mistakes. I was with a friend in the program, and I went into a store. We were shopping, and and I had to be 25 years sober. And the clerk was the only clerk was on the phone, and I was sure she was talking to a friend. She wasn't doing business. She finally got off the phone, and I told her what I thought of her manners, her business psyche, and and uh, she told her she could keep her little clock that I wanted to buy. And I walked out of the store with my little friend trotting along behind me, and I didn't go two feet. I turned right around, went back in the, the store, made amends for my behavior, and I bought the little clock. And because nobody does it perfectly, you know, I still make mistakes and I always will. But the neatest part of AA is that 10th step, you know, where we can apologize, we can make amends. I don't have to be some kind of fool, you know, and leave it there. In the past, I never would have gone back ever because my false pride wouldn't have let me. So using the traditions in that sense, you know, that, uh, that there's a unity to every group. And every group is a, a group of two, is a group. And um, with friends, you know, it's not just in an AA meeting that I practice the traditions in a group setting at my home group. That's probably the least place that I practice it because I'm not there all the time. But I'm around my husband. By the way, Bill died in 1997 one afternoon on the golf course with his AA buddies doing exactly what he wanted to do. And I'll tell you what, the women in AA saved my sanity. They all of AA held me up while I went through the shock and uh, of his death. And the neatest thing is I would hear a woman say, well, I don't want to bother you, somebody I sponsored or not. And I, I would tell them the truth. You are not bothering me. The only time I'm not thinking about me is when I'm talking to you about you. I learned so much about how to be a good sponsor during that period of time. I think sponsorship is something I can talk about for hours, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> not here. <laughs> because it's it's the most important relationship I've ever had, ever. And... Uh, I have learned how to not only be sponsored, but I've learned how to be a good sponsor. And a ton of that is because I practice the traditions. I'm not anybody's boss. I'm not anybody's arbiter. My sponsor said, Rena, I don't know what's right for me. How in the world can I know what's right for you? She never gave me advice. She told me what she did, and she told me her experiences and the, and the overall experiences of AA. I mean, she even had me not dating the first year of sobriety. And here's how. She said, Rena, you are so sick. Only a sick man would be attracted to you. Do you want to go that route again? Because I told her, hey, I know how to do relationships. I've been married three times. And she said, yeah, the common denominator and all that is you. 
and their failures. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> he said, why don't you make yourself into a happy, healthy woman and a happy, healthy man would be attracted to you? I couldn't argue with it. So that's how I ended up getting into the dreaded women's meeting because I didn't like women. But my sponsor said, you're not dating. You have nowhere to go. So I'll meet you at the women's meeting. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I, that, you know, you talk about different levels of learning. I really think AA is God's schoolroom. I thought I was just going to meetings. But what I was really learning on a, in a safe environment was how to have healthy, healthy relationships with women. There was no, no hidden motives, no agendas, no nothing. I learned to see them as real people, you know, not just cardboard cutouts on my stage where they're supposed to do what I say in order to make me happy and get me what I want. That's kind of the way I looked at the world up until the time I came into AA and for some time after. But the women's meeting week after week after week taught me that I really did care about their kids. And I did care about the fact they got fired. And I did care that they wanted to go have ice cream after the meeting, you know, which was a stopper right there because adults don't eat ice cream, do they? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, they eat ice cream. And slowly I came into the human race through that women's meeting. I really joined the human race. If you were to kind of come in for a landing here, think about this. You're sharing. A lot of people are hearing this out there. Uh, If you want to share a piece of your experience, strength, and hope that you think would be helpful, beneficial for them moving forward, what do you want to end it with? I'd really like to talk about the, the, the secondary level of learning because I think it's so important. You know, we talk about going to meetings, reading the big book, working the steps and all this stuff. And that's all. And you got to do that. But what's learning underneath is like with the women's meeting. I thought I was just going to a women's meeting. But what I was learning was how to get into humanity, you know. And in the beginning, I thought I was just taking care of business. I was really learning how to practice the principles of AA in in all my affairs. I had an experience at the bank when I was a couple of months sober where uh, the line was not moving fast enough for me. And I got impatient. Don't they know who I am? And all of a sudden, this voice came in my head and it said, practice these principles in all my affairs. And I thought, shoot, even in the bank? Yep, even in the bank. So that kind of learning, you know, in the beginning, I just thought, you know, I was dealing with with a whole lot of the ism when I was in that women's meeting, the faulty dependencies, the false ego, the needing to look good, you know, because of low self-esteem and all that stuff. You know, I learned what's mine and what's not in that in that meeting. Um, You know, I I ended up being reasonably healthy by the time, reasonably healthy by the time Bill and I got together, but then we had our own set of problems. And so, uh, and I thought that, for example, I thought I was just listening to how it works. This is good. 
I thought I was just listening to how it works in the traditions, which is read at every meeting. One day, a couple of years ago, I think I was 45, and I, and I did a calculation. And I, it turns out I have heard, given the number of weeks in the year, blah, 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 number of meetings I went to, I have heard how it works, and the traditions read 9,360 times. Imagine what else I've learned, 9,000. 360 times. I really believe that the repetition in AA, all you have to do is read the big book. It could be like 30 pages long because he repeats, repeats, repeats. I really think that it's the repetition that changes the way we think. I act my way into good thinking. I don't think my way into good acting. And always I had it backwards. And by taking the actions of going to meetings, by taking the actions of getting a sponsor, by taking the actions of working the steps, my thinking and my feelings change. I can't do it. That's where steps six and seven come in. I cannot change myself. I cannot make that transformation. You know, um, only God can or whatever, you know, God as you understand him. I should have put that in all along, but I just... God's just a word. It's a name for kind of an agreed upon concept. You know, somebody that's not me. You know how I know the difference between God and me? He never thinks he's me. And (laughs) this is true. So, you know, and I thought, you know, I really thought I was just saying my prayers. And I get on my knees and say my prayers just like I did that very first night. But I was really learning how to become spiritually fit and to be a maximum service to God and those about me. And it turns out this is my way to happiness. I had chased happiness all my life on the outside, trying to fill something that was a void on the inside. You know, happiness is a byproduct. So, you know, um, the, the whole program is based on taking the woman that I drank to get away from. I could not stand myself. Long before I abandoned my daughter, long before I started drinking, I hated myself and uh, had to hide out, you know, and I don't have to hide out slowly, slowly, slowly. My sponsor said, we come in here like we're encased in ice. And slowly as we work the steps and do the program and, and become real, the ice starts to melt and we become who it was we were all along. I always belonged. I was always a good person as a little bitty kid. You know, I always had value. And I finally came to the realization, and that's where my humility comes in, or the concept of humility. I'm equal to everyone. I'm neither above or below. And nobody else is either above or below me. I have totally lost my fear of people. The promises of the ninth step certainly have come true. But I'll tell you what, the promises that are all through that book have come true. You know, I'm a free person. You know, I can let the God within me work without me. That's big for me. You know, when I choose to live by the principles of AA, I am free from the bondage of self. The first time I read that, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I knew that was true. I knew I was in bondage to myself. I just didn't know how. (laughs) I'm still learning how, you know. And all I ever wanted to do was to be able to live comfortably in my own skin. 
And along the way, I've learned how to be comfortable and live in harmonious, comfortable relationships with you, with God, and with me. And what more is there? Yeah. I love it, Rena. You are correct. What more is there? And I can see why Karen thinks so highly of you as both an individual and a sponsor. I think you'd be a great sponsor. And so, man, I really have enjoyed our time together. This has been absolutely uh, just uh, refreshing for me. Uh, so I always end it with page 164 from the big book. And it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Rena. As you trudge the road of happy destiny, may God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Rena, I so appreciate your time today. God bless you. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Good. Wasn't it? So uh, uh, your, your first podcast turned out okay. Huh? Uh, I guess. I don't know. I guess I'll find out. Oh, no, no, no. It turned out from a content perspective. I'm just wondering if uh, you enjoyed it, but I fairly enjoyed it. I I'm sure did. You, did. I sh you ask right. really good questions. Oh, God bless you. All right. You take care, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Bye. One more time. Thank you, Rena, for spending time with me. It was an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure the listeners are going to appreciate your experience, strength, and hope very, very much. Now, remember, folks, we do not want you sharing your disease, or do we want you sharing your gossip? But we would absolutely love for you to share this episode. Uh, if you could pay, take time to pause, uh, hit that little share button on your device and share with a friend or family member that episode may be just what they need today. Now I'll do a little bit of listener feedback. Michael DMs on La Instagram. You know, where did I come up with this French accent thing? I don't even know where that came, just in my little pea brain. Anyway, Michael uh, DMs on the Instagram and he says, John, God bless you for the work you do and sharing your message. I just finished listening to Marina's episode, which is episode number 273. And he says, wow. Just wow. I don't remember ever crying and listening to another alcoholic story, but Marina's drove me to a blubbering mess. What an inspirational and tragic experience for her, but she told her story with such emotional expertise. Truly awesome. Thank you so much for this podcast. And I agree, Michael. And if you ones out there have not listened to episode number 273 with Marina, I would highly suggest you go on back there and listen to that episode. Quan writes in from San Francisco. He says, hi, John. Quan from San Francisco here. I love your podcast, everything about it. I find it funny how people who don't know how to use the fast forward button... <laughs> laugh out loud. What are you talking about is when people, 
when people complain sometimes about uh, me and the introductions and all that sort of stuff, he says, <laughs> I guess there's people that just don't know how to use the fast forward. <laughs> That's a good point, Quan. And he says, uh, uh, a Sobercast is a speaker podcast, by the way. <laughs> when he's saying that, if you don't want it, you can go to Sobercast. Right? I got it. I, I listen to Sobercast sometimes, and I like that. If you haven't listened to Sobercast, you may like it. It's just uh, basically all speaker tapes. Um, it's not an interview style. Usually it's more like, you know, just somebody getting up from behind a podium and sharing. And anyway, Quan says, I listen to those also, but I like listening to you because of the interactions with your multi-bilingual <laughs> bilingo attempts. <laughs> Thank you, Quan. I appreciate it. <laughs> And uh, what Quan's referring to there is that uh, sometimes I give a haphazard attempt at speaking in other languages, and I appreciate you, uh, Quan. Thanks for writing in. Danette DMs on la Instagram as well, and she says, I listened to episode number 272, Extravagant Promises, today. Thank you for setting an example of vulnerability and sharing with us smiley face. Well, you're welcome, uh, Danette. I appreciate you listening in, and I appreciate your kind words. My friend, now I don't always read these, but I have a few texts here that I'm going to read. Uh, I have friends who listen to the podcast podcast and you know they they just find it easier to text me as opposed to <laughs> sending in an email or you know going into a social media and presenting it that way and my dear friend curry wrote in at first there was a quote from um from the from the big book that he put here. And the quote is, and I love this quote, it says, showing others who suffer how we were giving, given help is the very thing which makes life so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, the dark past, you can avert death and misery for them. And so Kerry actually texted that in after he listened to my episode. When I say my episode, the one where I shared my story on episode number 272, Extravagant Promises. And then he wrote after that, Juan M. He calls me Juan. And uh, he says, that's a term of endearment. Brother, I listened to your podcast and I shared it with a close friend who has had a similar who has had similar experiences. She's not an alcoholic. However, your story moved her to the point of tears. I just want to commend you for putting that testimony out into the world because the world needs your story. I feel blessed to have heard your message this morning and I truly thank you for all the countless ways you've helped me. Uh, and my own journey. I was reminded of the attached reading, the one I just read, from the big book by your story. God bless you, your family, and your sweet mama twig in heaven. Curry. Uh, my mom's name, she used to call herself Twig, and that what, that's what Curry's talking about. Thank you so much, Curry. Thank you for writing that in, my friend. I, I appreciate you. And, uh, Mama Twig up there in heaven, if you're listening right now, I love you. And uh, uh, I wish I could give you one more big hug. 
Sorry, I didn't expect that. Casey, my friend, also texted in. He says, I was so li- so delighted to hear your experience, strength, and hope this morning on Sober Tech, on Sober Text, on Sober, <laughs> on Sober Speak. I know it was a hard decision for you to release your episode, but it was absolutely fantastic. I love you, buddy, and I'm grateful for our friendship and all the service. Love to you as well, Casey. I appreciate you and everything everything that we've been through before and all your service to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and your friendship. And then my friend Jim texted in. Uh, actually, did he? Yeah, yeah, he texted also. Happy New Year to you and uh, uh, Shannon and the kids. John, loved hearing your story today. I've been listening for four years since Brenda J, episode number 51. Oh, you started with a good one there, Mr. Jim. What a blessing you are to me. And I've got my three-year chip right in my pocket. God is great. Well, God bless you, Jim. And that is fantastic on your three years. I absolutely love it. And uh, yeah, Brenda J was, oh gosh, she was just absolutely fantastic. So anyway, congratulations once again. Uh, Mr. Jim, on your three years, I appreciate you, your friendship, and love to you as well. Ricky writes in and he says, hey, today's episode on Sober Speak was perhaps the best ever. Uh, good job, buddy. And he was talking about the episode where I was featured. Thank you, Ricky. I appreciate you, my friend, and love to you as well. Lori writes in and she says, hi, John M. I live in Watauga, Texas. My sobriety date is... June 29th of 22, and I am coming up on a year. And you know what? By the time I release this, Miss uh, Lori, it may be, I, I think it's going to be an actual year. It could be over a year, um, a couple weeks out here. And she said, I heard about your podcast from a friend in AA, and I listened to it on my walks. Listening to other people's story has helped me so much. Thank you so much for your podcast, Lori. Well, if you're out there walking right now, listening to Lori, uh, thank you for listening. And I'm glad we can be a small part of your journey. Jess writes in and just says, hi, John, I've been going to, I've been trying to get sober since March of 2022. Unfortunately, I'm a chronic relapser. I've been there, Jess, I understand. And haven't been able to string together more than three months of sobriety, but I'm not going to give up. Good for you, Jess. My new sobriety date is January 2nd of 2023, and I just relapsed and drank daily for three weeks. I have a great home group in Langley, uh, British Columbia. Oh, great white north up there and they promote a strong big book message i am in a big book study as well and getting involved as much as i can with service work i've been going back and listening to the top episodes oh i think she's talking about so she went to her website and wait if you go to www.soberspeak.com there is a tab across the top and it says top episodes and what that means is top listen to episodes but anyway um and so uh, and I have and I've listened to Reno John and Sarah G. And Sarah G, her episode about changing her sobriety date really hit home as I've had to do that a few times. I also really jo- enjoyed listening to episode number 202, 272, where you, John M, shared your story. 
I am a mother of two who suffers from mental health and addiction issues, and I would be lying if I didn't say I was trying to keep my composure at work while listening to your episode. I was very moved. Thank you so much for promoting such a strong big book message in your episodes and find that the humor in debauchery. <laughs> Laugh or cry, right? She put a question mark. Yeah, debauchery. It's a good way to put it. She says, I choose to laugh and I love that you do as well. I have tried other sobriety podcasts and I have not found any with such a good, strong, step-based message and a caring host. You are really a good listener and keep things moving positive. I also really appreciate that you do not interrupt the episodes with ads, a small but thoughtful detail that it took me a few episodes to notice, but it really creates the feeling of being in a safe space. Thank you for all you do and for keeping me company at work. Jess, well, Jess, if you're listening at work, uh, thank you so much for, um, writing in. I appreciate you. Michael G writes in and Michael says, hi, John and everyone at Sober Speak. So this is going out to the group here. He says, I have been listening to your podcast since I realized after two years of sobriety and I now have 18 months. I truly love your show and the work that you do. I have shared the links with the show to newcomers and old time, old timers alike. I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, and I personally have many of, and I personally have known many of the guests and speakers on the show and continue to carry the message in North Carolina, my home of the last four years. I seem to remember a story. Oh yeah, I remember that. On your podcast, I often share with people, but I think I may be imagining a bit. And I was wondering if you either knew the story or remember the episode it was in, uh, as I'd like to remember it correctly and share it. So if anybody knows of the story and you can send me, I, I, I vaguely remember this, but I, I couldn't remember what episode on it, uh, it was on. And he says, uh, the story goes something like this. It's an alcoholic on his knees begging God to keep him sober and the promises that he would give everything he has. God says it's done, and his alcoholism disappeared. Then the man gets up and starts to leave, and God says, where are you going? You have to keep up your end of the bargain. And the man says, oh, I've got $10 on him, and God takes it. The man comes back and asks for some of the some of the money for gas, and he asks, what do you need gas for? Uh, the man explains, God, the man explains his car. Uh, and then God says, you didn't tell me you had a car. You got to give that to me too, etc." until the man has nothing. Then God says, I'll let you drive my car, uh, uh, work my job and take care of my family. Something like that at the end, any memory of this story. So if somebody knows that story, what episode it was mentioned on, could you please uh, email me and we can let Michael knows. He says, it's no big deal. Uh, if not, I shall rewrite it on my own. I just wanted to thank you for all the great work you do uh, and wish you continue blessings as you travel down your path. Sincerely, Michael G. in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Well, hopefully we can get you uh, the information that you're looking for there, Michael. Tony writes in and he says, Oh, I remember this one. He says, Hi, John. And it was, and it was, uh, the subject line was my dad. End of an era, my friend. My dad passed away on the 9th of January. What a journey for the last seven months. And I managed it sober. 
physically sober and almost always emotionally sober. That is that is unbelievable. So I am back in Glasgow alone to fix, close off, and empty and finalize my dad's affairs in his life. AA and a wonderful 12-step program has saved my skin. This experience has strengthened my sobriety and my spirituality. I have experienced this with no mind-altering substances. Your episodes have given me so much support, so much hope and love. Take care, my friend, and keep on keeping on. Three big hearts regards, Tony. Well, God bless you, Tony. Uh, I'm sorry for your loss. I know we've, uh, I know you've sent us several emails about it. I'm just glad that we've been able to kind of document some of this as a uh, audio diary, or not diary, but an audio uh, autobiography, if you will, for you and your dad. And uh, God bless you. And like Tony said there, I think the uh, important part of that message is he's done it all sober. Um, one step at a time and uh, with the program by his side. And uh, God bless you, Tony. All right, everybody, that is an, that is a wrap. And when I say a wrap, uh, may God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I hope to be back next week. I take this one week at a time. We shall see. Uh, until then, love you guys. Be well.